The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 18 through 29. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Middlebrooks and I'm one of the pastors on staff and it is great to be with you this morning to open God's Word together. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here and I hope that I have the chance to to meet you at the conclusion of the service if I've not already done so. Well, we are in a study of the book of Deuteronomy and in last week's passage, Moses recounted the defeats of the Amorite kings, King Sihon and King Og. And in God's covenant that he made with Abraham back in Genesis 15, God told how his people would return to the land of Canaan. And that return would coincide with the judgment of the Amorites in Canaan. And so God waited over 400 years for the Amorites to repent, to turn from their wicked and heinous lifestyle of sin and idolatry. But then his his patience ran out. And so God used his people, Israel, as his instrument of judgment upon the Amorites, destroying every one of them. And Abraham, in that covenant, we see that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham, allowing them to come back into this land. Now, in the verses that precede what you just heard read in verses 12 through 17, we see how Moses uh, gave instructions as to how they would divide this newly possessed land up. And so we see that the, the tribes of Gad and Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh are the ones who settle in this newfound land. But as we'll learn this morning, Moses instructs God's people about what it would look like to faithfully 
live out their call that God had given them in the promised land. So with that as the backdrop, let's pray, let's ask the Spirit to open our hearts and our minds that we might see glorious truths in His Word this morning. So let's pray together. Father, many of us have come here willingly. Others of us have come here simply out of routine because it's Sunday morning. And still others of us have come against our wishes and our wills. But no matter what the motive, we're here by your sovereign appointment. And so in a world that seeks to toss us around by every wind of doctrine and newfound fads, we desperately need a sure and steady anchor. And so may we see this morning that with ever-increasing clarity and conviction that you alone are that sure and steady anchor in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Holy Spirit, would you come... Tend to your word now, that we might hear it, receive it, and be changed by it. If you will do this, we will return thanks. We pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, Google released a database of over 5 billion books published between the years 1500 and 2008. And you can type in a search word into the database and discover how often words have been used throughout uh, the last uh, many centuries. But based on this data, New York Times columnist David Brooks offers what he calls the story of the last half century. And the first part of the story is the rise of individualism. And so Brooks notes that in the past 50 years, individualistic words and phrases have increasingly been overshadowed by communal words and phrases. So for instance, the following individualistic words have been more used frequently. The words like self, personalized. I come first. I can do it myself. In contrast, the following communal words have been used less frequently. Words such as community, share, band together, and common good. And so Brooks concludes, over the past half century, society's become more individualistic. And as it's become more individualistic, it has also become less morally aware, he says, because social and moral fabrics are inextricably linked, thus leading to social breakdown. Now, as Moses preached the second generation towards covenant renewal, central to his message is a message that is countercultural and counter to this idea of individualism. In his message, it's a message of being a servant and surrendering. A message of paying costs for the larger body. A message of sacrifice and labor over against pleasure and rest. And as we'll see in this message, it's a message that says that no one should rest until all have conquered. Now based on Brooks's findings, we can assume that this message will not settle easily on our hearts. So may God give us ears this morning to hear what Moses preached thousands of years ago so that we might experience renewal here and now. You see in your bulletin, our outline for this morning and our passage reveals at least two things related to what a life of faithfulness to God's call looks like. And so we'll do that by way of two points. First, a life of faithfulness to God's calling always includes serving with the Lord's people until His purposes have been accomplished. And secondly, a life of faithfulness to God's calling also always includes surrendering to the Lord's plans with confident trust. 
And we'll see this uh, from different angles in both the life of Moses as well as the life of Joshua. Now in verses 18 through 20, Moses gives clear instructions to these tribes that have already received their allotment of land. He tells these two and a half tribes, the men of these tribes, to take up arms and continue to go westward with the rest of God's people so that the other tribes might also experience this new land and settle there where God was calling them. And so God's people have remained together for the last 40 years, wandering around in the wilderness. So now was not the time for them to break up and go in different directions. Since all the tribes were gifted their land by God's sovereign appointment, they were to fight and work together in order to receive the fullness of the land that God was giving each of them. But I want us to try to imagine that after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, wondering when in the world are we ever going to find the land that God has promised us, and you're one of those two and a half tribes, and you finally receive your land, what do you think the temptation might have been of those two and a half tribes toward the rest of the tribes that still had to go in and fight in order to secure their land? I know what I would have said. Hope that goes well with you. Send a postcard. We'll come visit once you get settled. We're going to rest because we're exhausted. But God, knowing the full tendencies of the selfish mind and heart of humans, he calls his people to serve in unity with one another. They were to continue on in what God had started by dispossessing the remaining enemies, moving them out of the land so that everyone could settle and enjoy their new home. There was no room for this every man for himself mentality. It was to be an all for one and one for all mentality. They were being called to serve sacrificially for the sake of their brothers and sisters and for the sake of carrying out the purposes that God wanted them to accomplish. Now, I think in many ways, it's more difficult for us today to embrace a vision and a posture of selfless service for the betterment and the advancement of something bigger than ourselves. But Israel was much more communal in nature. Living amongst one another, they were more in tune with the needs of each other, and so therefore they were willing to give of their resources and their time and energy in order that others might benefit. There was more of a corporate solidarity as each individual saw themselves as part of a larger body. Now, as Brooks noted, we do live in a very individualistic culture. And a culture that puts a premium on pursuing our own desires and our own pleasures, even to the detriment of others, even those we love, like our family and our friends. We see this every day. We see it in the way politics works. We see it in sports where athletes are trying to vie for the spotlight, especially with name, image, and likeness over the last year. We see it in Hollywood, but we also see it in our own hearts if we're willing to admit it. Because we can easily attempt to privatize our faith in Christ by turning it into a me and Jesus mentality. But too often we can base our level of engagement with and service to the church and her mission down to, what do I stand to gain for this? And even as we come to worship on Sunday morning, we can turn it into a consumer mentality. What I want to hear, what I want to sing, how I would do it. And one of the many problems with individualism is it's inherently isolating. See, we were created by a God who is in perfect community and communion with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, we were created to be in community with one another so that we could live a story that is larger than ourselves. 
And Isaiah reminds us that God's ways and his words are higher than ours. And too often, though, we can narrow our focus down to building our own personal kingdoms and our own agendas, rather than having our our vision expanded to see how we can lock arms with other brothers and sisters to carry out the purposes that God has called us to as the body of Christ. And when we simply focus on ourselves, we can miss out. And we can even rob the broader body of Christ from carrying out the fullness of her mission the way that God has designed her. See, Israel here is in wartime. They're tasked by God's direction and his power to go in and drive out the inhabitants in the land. And by God's design, it was going to take all of them working together in order to complete this task. Now, some of you may have heard the name Desmond Doss. Uh, He is buried in the Chattanooga National Cemetery. And Doss joined the army back in April of 1942 after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And he couldn't just sit by while many of his loved ones went into war, but he was more of a pacifist that didn't want to take up arms. He didn't want to kill anybody. So he enlisted as a medic in order to save people. And in May of 1945, Japanese troops were defending the last barrier, preventing a potential Allied invasion of their homeland. And so the U.S. at Okinawa were attempting to take an intimidating rock face that was known as Hacksaw Ridge. And so soldiers would climb this huge rope this rope wall that they would get up to the top of the ridge in order to fight the Japanese. And many of them didn't make it down alive. And so they got to the top almost thinking that they were securing the ridge only to find out there was a counterattack by the Japanese forcing them to come back down and climb down and get to the bottom of the ridge. But there was one man who refused to leave. And that was Desmond Doss. Without a weapon, he trudged back and forth across the top of the ridge helping to pick up fallen soldiers. A man that had his legs blown off, he picked him up, carried him back to the ridge, lowered him down with the rope to the bottom safely. Another man who was shot in the knee, he picked him up, did likewise. And every time he went back for another fallen soldier, he would pray to the Lord, Lord, let me get just one more. Time and time again. Seventy-five soldiers later, Desmond Doss brought them all safe and sound back to the bottom of this ridge. And Desmond Doss gave his life and sacrificial service to a cause that was much greater than himself. He was unwilling to rest and stop until all those that he was bound with were safe and rescued. Let me ask us, what about us this morning? Has all been conquered by King Jesus? Has everyone heard of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout all the nations? Have mercy and justice rained down like flowing waters? As John Piper notes in his book, the nations, Let the Nations Be Glad, he says, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that, he says. We are in a spiritual battle as believers in Christ. And we are engaged in spiritual war, and the church is called to carry out the mission of proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're called to do this in the unity and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. But here's the thing. We will never surrender our own agendas and our own desires for the sake of Christ's greater mission until our hearts are gripped by the reality 
that Christ saved us by his work that we can never do ourselves in order to reconcile us back to the Father and also bring us into the greater body and the body of Christ, his church. Will we surrender all that we desire and all that we want unto the king who has called us to a greater mission? We also see that a life of faithfulness to God's calling always includes surrendering to the Lord's plan with confident trust. So in verses 21 and 22, Moses looks forward to the future that's entrusted to his successor, Joshua. And as Joshua prepares to usher in the Israelites into the promised land, he's called to surrender fear in the face of something massive, the great challenge that lies ahead of he and God's people. And Moses reminds Joshua of those conquests of the Amorite kings of Sihon and Og as evidence that God will give them victory, that they not need fear anything as they go into the land because they could be assured that God, their warrior, was fighting with them and for them. But now, based on the sheer size of the people that were in the land that we know and the number of the people in the land, it's understandable that Joshua had fear, not to mention the shoes that he was filling with Moses and his leadership for the last many years. But Moses calls Joshua not to fear because the God who is leading them has promised victory and he's already displayed his faithfulness to them. Now I know many of us, like Joshua, we struggle with fear, with worry, with anxiety. And fear can captivate and dominate our hearts and our minds. And whether it's the fear of man or the fear of what the future holds for us or the future or the fear of loss or disappointment, or the fear of death. And what can happen is we can forget or minimize or even disregard God's promises that he's made to us as his children, thus leaving us feeling helpless and at worst, paralyzed. The problem, though, is not necessarily that we experience fear. The problem is that we fear the wrong thing because our fear of the created thing in whatever shape or form it takes place That must be exchanged for a healthy fear of God that is rooted in abiding faith in who God is and His character and the promises that He's made to us. The the teacher of the book of Ecclesiastes, he concludes after chasing out everything that the world offers and seeing that it's vanity, this is his verdict. He says, fear God and keep His commandments. After all that he experienced, he boils it it down to that. Fear God and keep his commandments. In order for us to exchange a fear of man or a fear of any created thing to a healthy fear of God so that we can walk by faith toward whatever he calls us to, is that we have to see that man indeed is small and God is big. So Joshua and the people of God, as they went into this new land, they had to see that no matter how the, the people looked in appearance to them, their God was greater, and he was more powerful, so that they could walk in courageously and move into the land with confidence. But you know, as followers of Christ, you and I are not only called to, but we can also actually live unafraid lives, not because we're intrinsically brave or courageous, And not because we're not going to experience very difficult things in our lives, but because we have a healthy view and fear of the Lord Jesus. The question is, will we as the psalmist writes in Psalm 2, will we serve the Lord with fear? Trusting in His provision, His presence with us, and His power 
given to us? Where might you be surrendering unto the fear of man this morning in whatever shape or form that comes rather than surrendering to the lordship of King Jesus? In verses 23 through 29, we see next how the Lord calls Moses to surrender his pride in the face of massive loss. From the time that God called Moses in the burning bush, Moses has committed his life as his life's goal to bring God's people into the promised land. But we see that at Kadesh Barnea, because of the people's sin and rebellion, when God told them to go into the land and fight because they would have victory, but the people were fearful and so they neglected to go in, because of that rebellion and sin, Moses is not allowed to enter the land. And so in verse 23, this is why we see Moses plead, begging with God, let me go over and cross over into the land with my people. And look at his prayer. It's a posture of humility, of patience. He recognizes God's sovereignty as he said, Who among the gods are like you? Who can do such works and mighty acts as yours, O Lord? Moses asked to cross over the land. But God gets angry at Moses because of the rebellion of his people. And like a, a father who's heard enough from his child, says, Okay, that's it. Not another word. It's done. Don't speak about it anymore. Now that sounds kind of harsh coming from God because Moses has been a pretty good leader. But we have to understand that Moses was the mediator between God and his people. So he was responsible for the actions of those under his charge. And in a sense, Moses was bearing the fault of his own generation who rebelled and sinned against God. But lest we think that Moses was innocent or blameless, we have to remember, going back to Numbers chapter 20, what happened with Moses. When he didn't take God at his word, and God said, Speak to this rock, and water will pour forth for the people. And what did Moses do? He struck the rock twice, instead of trusting the Lord. And so Moses was not blameless in any way, but as it relates to him not being able to enter the land, three times... In Deuteronomy 1, here in this text, and then the next chapter, Deuteronomy 4, Moses reminds the people, he says, because of you, the Lord is angry with me. Moses not being permitted to step foot in the land because of the sinfulness of the people who were allowed to step into the land, it reveals something to us. Even if just in seed form, we see that substitution of the one is made for the many. For the sake of the people, Moses bears the judgment of the people's sin. For he will say in the next chapter, in verse 22, For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Though it's just a shadow, because Moses is sinful and and not blameless, he entered into the suffering of his people in a way that foreshadowed the greater and final mediator, Jesus Christ who offered up a blameless life for the sins of his people. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, So by the one man's obedience, the many would be made righteous. Though we're sinners, justly deserving God's wrath and displeasure because of our sin, Christ became our substitute, bearing the wrath of the Father, so that we could be counted as righteous and experience eternal life and salvation. See, by denying Moses access into the land, God was making a statement to Israel and to Moses. 
He was reminding the people of his holiness and also that he does not take sin lightly. That the guilty will not be cleared. Sin must be dealt with and paid for. But now you can imagine the depth of disappointment that Moses experienced not being able to enter this land that he had longed for for decades upon decades to enter. But similarly, when God told Abraham in Genesis 13 to go up to the mountain and feast his eyes in every direction of the land that he was given he and his descendants, so God calls Moses to go to the top of Mount Pisgah and to look to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. Now something we might not understand, but in the ancient Near East, deeding land to someone involved a ritual showing of that land to the inheritor. So in essence, when God called Moses to go to the top of that mountain and look around, he was saying, Moses, you're included in this promise. This is your land, even though you will not be able to step foot in it now. And although Moses didn't have his prayer answered the way he wanted, notice how he responds here. He responds with obedience, continuing to encourage Joshua, to commission him, to prepare him for what was lying ahead for Joshua and his mission. Moses was more concerned with exalting his Lord than pouting about what he didn't get that he wanted. And there's a whole lesson that we could drill down on that point alone. But Moses became an encourager to his successor, Joshua. Building him up, preparing him for the role that he would play, taking the people all the way into the land. Moses surrenders his pride to play a key role in the larger story of God's unfolding story for his people. Now, those of us who have given ourselves to any kind of sustained prayer know that when we've prayed, maybe things have not happened in the timing or the manner in which we wanted. And maybe some of us are in a season of prayer right now where we are pleading with God. We are crying out, saying, Lord, would you please bring physical healing to my body? Would you please bring financial relief to our family?" Would you please bring clarity by pouring out your wisdom upon this situation that I am clueless about? Or would you bring reconciliation in our faltering marriage or this estrangement with one of my children? But nothing seems to happen. And in those moments where we're crying out to God, pleading with Him in prayer, and nothing seems to change in our circumstances, we have a choice. We can either accuse God or we can submit in obedience. And if we accuse God, then we stand in the seat of judgment over the Creator who made us and saying that we know best what we need in our lives. Or we can humbly trust that although we might not have a clue what God is up to, we know His plans for us are good all the time. We can be assured that God's no to our prayers is always a yes to His providence and His perfect purposes in our lives. The question is, do we believe that this morning, regardless of what we're walking through, as hard as it may feel? Okay, spoiler alert, Moses dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. He doesn't have his prayer answered and gets, does not get to go into the land. But over a thousand years later, we read in the Gospel of Luke that Moses and his spiritual body joins Elijah when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses' prayer, though not answered in the way and in the timing that he wanted, was answered in a much greater way than he could ever have imagined. 
as he joined Jesus in conversation with him in the land as Jesus was about to make his way to Calvary. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 lists many of the Old Testament saints and examples of those who held out faith in the promises of God. And this is how he concludes that chapter. He said, All these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something far better for us. Do you and I believe that this morning? Despite what we look at in our lives and the circumstances that we're called to face, do we believe that there's something far better and that God is up to something good? See, we as Christ's church, we have been given a mission to complete. And while this promise of victory is certain for us, we're to faithfully fight as one body in the power of the Spirit who will embolden our hands and guide our feet as we go forth in the mission. Our covenant God calls His covenant people to a summoned life away from self-fulfillment and pursuit of happiness at our own, on our own terms. And rather than ask, what do I want for my life? Our covenant God calls us to ask, what does God want from me? See, there is a day of eternal rest that's coming. But for now, let us together live summon lives in relentless service to building the kingdom so that it breaks in more and more, so that it might show forth our glorious King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you allow us by your Spirit to look honestly in our own hearts, to see the many ways that we selfishly pursue and expend energy building our own kingdoms. Lord, would you show us you've called us not only into a family that is much bigger than ourselves, but you've called us to a greater purpose, to a mission that you have promised that you will complete and that victory is certain. And so would you allow us to link arms with one another, that we would move in the direction of carrying forth the gospel together so that we might see that men, women, and children who hear the good news might come to faith in Christ. And Lord, we do long for that day, for your return. But we ask that you would give us faith to believe, even in our unbelief, that what you will bring will blow our minds more than anything that we could ask or imagine. Father, come and do this now in our hearts, even as we leave this place and head into our week, that we might be a light in dark places for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.